Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sara Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Rachel Williams. After 18 years in an abusive relationship, Rachel was shot and severely injured by her violent partner in 2011. He then committed suicide, as did her 16-year-old son, Jack, shortly after the attack. Rachel spent several weeks in hospital and now lives with life-altering injuries. Rachel is an ambassador for the Freedom Programme, patron for Seeds Wales and a Safe Lives pioneer. She campaigns tirelessly and is committed to ending domestic abuse. So I am super excited to welcome Rachel Williams to the show. Welcome, Rachel. Oh, thanks for having me, Sarah. I really appreciate you having me on. No, you're very, very welcome. So, I mean, obviously, I'm very excited to have you as my guest because, I mean, I've met you two years ago when the Dash Charity had a conference and you spoke. And I mean, I knew of you before, obviously, because of my work as the patron of the Dash Charity. But your story is so shocking, so devastating. But your strength and your courage to turn that trauma and tragedy into something now that's helping so many others is quite incredible, which is why I wanted you to share your story with my listeners. So would you be able to do that for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a survivor of domestic abuse and violence um, and an attempted murder. So I was with my perpetrator of abuse for 18 years and there was a lot of violence, um, a lot of non-fatal strangulation, um, you know, the head working, the jailer tactics, everything was used. And I think for me, because I got into it, into the relationship quite young um, and I was a single parent of Josh who was two at the time and I think because I didn't have much to compare the relationship with looking back on it now I mean hindsight's wonderful in it but looking back now at that sort of age there was nothing really evident in the beginning where you know if I got with somebody now and I seen some of the tactics that was used by Darren, then I would have thought, ooh, no, red flag alert, you know, boof, he's definitely a perpetrator of abuse. Because, and he was a couple of years older than me as well. Um, and I think I was just sucked into that grooming process, which it is a grooming process, you know, let's, let's not shy away from that. It is a grooming process, you know. And I always say to people, you know, if somebody slapped you on the first date, you certainly wouldn't go back for a second. Um, you know, they, they really were in hook, line and sinker. Can you explain a bit about how Darren did that? He was very charming. He was a real good laugh. He, you know, used to buy little things for my son. Um, You know, just really charming. Um, you know talking about the future and stuff like that and then he, he he told me about his childhood he was brought up in a violent home and his brother had committed suicide four years previous to us meeting you know so there was all this bit of a story as well and 
you know, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, the tactics they use, you know, they are very charming. You know, used to pick me up and take me for rides in the car, you know, stuff like that. And yeah, I think obviously, you know, over the years, I could see that, you know, he had a temper, you know, and literally it is. And I think most people who have been in abusive relationships will say it almost seems to be before you know it, you're in it. And it's over, you're in over your head, basically, you know, and and I don't think even then you realise how toxic that relationship possibly is until you actually get out of it. Um, and now being out, out of it, you know, um, this happened in 2011 when I left Darren. But looking back now, I can see how absolutely vile he was as a person and how toxic the relationship was. And I think the older I was becoming, the less tolerant I was becoming of his behaviour as well. Um, I was 39 um, and we'd gone on holiday with friends of ours. The kids didn't come. Um, and again, he kicked off, you know, uh, usual thing, kicking off, uh, whinging and having a pop about anything. I mean, Darren would argue with, with himself, you know, in a dark room. He was just horrendous so and I can remember we had a row and I'd gone down to the beach and I'd said to my friend who was they were an older couple and I said oh I, I, I'm going down to the beach I went down and he followed after about 20 minutes later stomping across the beach and bearing in mind he was six foot seven and 22 stone he was a bodybuilder builder so he wasn't like you know your average sort of guy snatched my bag out of my hands demanding money um, so I just give him the purse. Uh, next thing then he picked up a, a load of sand and just chucked it straight in my face. And for me then that was like, whoa, you know, normally he's all submissive and he's sorry and everything else. And I think it, that was really for me the point that, that I thought, you know what, I cannot possibly stay with this man anymore. And I started thinking about the future and thinking about, you know, I'd have to retire with him. Imagine being around this guy 24-7 at some point in our lives. I just, I can't do it. For my own sanity, I cannot do it. So I sort of started putting the seed, the seeds in my head then and sort of mulling over stuff. And then we come back off holiday and um, I think that was in the June and then the July. We'd had a big bust up and it resulted in him strangling me again, uh, which the kids witnessed and him slitting his wrists in front of our 16 year old son. And then the fear of staying with him became greater than the fear of leaving him because I always knew it was not going to be an easy exit for me because he always used to say there was only one way out for me and that was in a wooden box. So I knew it was going to be tough. But I did make the decision at that point to leave him. He went off the hospital and had his wrists um, stitched back up. And then he stayed with his sister for a bit. I sort of like really took the ball by the horns and thought, right, I'm going to see a solicitor. I'd done that. I filed for divorce. Uh, the stalking and harassment happened, you know, over six weeks. He was constantly texting me using his persuader tactic to try and get me back, you know, took an overdose, going to kill himself. He couldn't live without me. Um, and in the end, then I just knew I had to give a statement. So I gave a long historical 18 page statement to the police. Um, and it was like, right. So they arrested him, charged him with common assault for the non-fatal strangulation, which uh, is why I campaigned around that to get it as a standalone offense. And then basically 
I moved back into the family home on the 18th of August 2011 and Darren was still um, not at the property. He had, he had bail restrictions, so it was great. He couldn't come to the property. But I got to work on that Friday on the 19th of August and um, Darren came to my place of work armed with a sawn-off shotgun. Um, and there was a battle in the shop. Um, this was like a, a busy salon on a Friday afternoon, you know, little old ladies under the dryer, you know, it was just bedlam. And I don't know why I did, I ran towards him and started grappling with him uh, for the gun. Uh, at that point, he hit me with the butt of the gun and I'd fallen on the floor. Um, and then he just proceeded to rain blows and kicks and stamped all over me and everything else. And then the next thing he'd gone and then I was rushed to the hospital and then I was told some hours later that they'd found him, he was, he'd hung himself, which was a huge relief. Um, I mean, I cannot put into words the feeling when I was told that he'd been found dead. It was just incredible. And then I came out of hospital on the 23rd of September and sadly I was certain Jack took his life on the 26th, on Monday the 26th of September. He was 16 um, and he's a, another victim of Darren's abuse. Um, so yeah, because of one man's actions, um, he caused devastation, yeah. I mean, that's just absolutely horrific. I mean, I just can't believe that you went through all that and you're still standing and you know the loss of a child in any situation has got to be the most painful thing that anyone can experience how did you keep going I, Rachel during those times I think um because when I came out of hospital there was a and even in hospital there was a lot of police involvement because his fact we hear the victim blaming that goes on is incredible, um, you know, um, and the terminology those in the domestic abuse world use as victim survivors are the flying monkeys. And I had a lot of flying monkeys around me at that time, you know, uh, victim blaming going on. You know, there was a lot of criminal activities. My mum had a brick through a window, you know, my sister's tires were slashed on her car. Um, there was a lot going on. And I think, you know, um, when I, because Jack had chosen to stay with Darren's family while I was in hospital, because now in Jack's eyes, Darren was the underdog and Jack always used to go for the underdog. Um, and he blamed me um, for Darren's death. And I knew that he was being fed that by the other side of the family. Um, and I phoned social services, begging them to remove him from that household. And they said, he's 16, he can live where he wants, uh, which I now know is not what, should have been said but I think because I was in this almost in this vortex of just everything just coming at me and I think you know sometimes services and those who deal with victims of domestic abuse and violence don't realize how tough that victim survivor is because even though she's classed as a victim in that household with that perpetrator she's surviving every day she's safety planning safety managing looking after those kids you know really sort of almost like a soldier, you know, planning ahead, you know? And I think you are tough. And I think, you know, obviously losing Jack, you know, I couldn't turn the clocks back. I just had to deal with what I was dealt with. And it was like, right, you never get over, over losing a child. You do learn to live with it easier. As time goes on, like as 10 years this year, time goes on, 
you do so it time is a healer and I will say that you know when, when people say that and I used to think hey, what do you know you know time's a healer you know I, I never signed up you know to one be abused by a perpetrator and two to lose a son because of it you know I, I found myself in a club that nobody wants to be in but it was like and after all the failings with my case and, and I can remember sitting it was 2012 the following year having my IPCC report my serious case review not knowing really much about services and stuff what they sh- procedures and what they should have followed and I can remember reading it and thinking well that's not right that's not right 36 officers dealt with my case in six weeks that is definitely not right you know things were lost dropped missed not handed over um, and I just thought do you know what I'm going to do something about this and I'm going to I'm going to help others you know I want to share my story so others don't go down the same path as myself and perhaps you know that that I could help other women um talking as a woman survivor of, from a male perpetrator and just share my experience so they can see that when the damage it does not to you as a person but to those in your life your children which is great now because they're seen as as victims and not witnesses you know and the wider effect you know my mum and my stepdad you know they've lost a grandson my sister's lost a nephew you know my son have lost a brother so it was just showing that that is the consequence of you know when you know you are with a perpetrator of abuse you know and sometimes we're blinded by what can happen I mean mine was an extreme case but that is the reality of it and I just thought you know I I need to share my story and I've always been sort of a tough cookie anyway um and I just wanted to get the message out you know that there is life after domestic abuse as well you know um and I would have gone with the clothes on my back I reached that point but I just wanted people to know that there is life after domestic abuse yeah, and you do amazing work campaigning. You know, you've been on the TV. I've seen you many times, heard you on the radio. Really are using your position, however traumatic it was, to, to help other people. So can we talk a little bit about the abuse? And when you're in the relationship, because I know some of my listeners right now will be listening to this thinking, am I in an abusive relationship? How do I know? It's been going on for so long, like you said, that you normalise it, don't you? And and accept it and start to believe actually you are responsible for it and it is your fault. So what signs should people be looking out for, Rachel? So it's funny because I have lots of messages every day and, and people ask the same thing. You know, women will say, you know, am I being abused because I, he's never physically hit me? And I said, no, he's never physically hit you because you're complying. There's no need to hit you because you're not breaking his rules, because it's all about his rules, his game. Um, And he uses all these different tactics to keep those rules in place. And then when I start sharing, you know, stuff with with the person then, then I do say, you know, this is why there's been no violence. Um, But, you know, if you can't do what you want to do as a person, you can't make your own decisions. You know, like, for instance, like three years after the shooting, I was asked to speak at a coercive and controlling conference. And I said, I would love to, but I don't know anything about coercion. And the lady who was putting the conference on, she said, well, didn't you say you were a hairdresser and you couldn't cut a man's hair? Didn't you say that you couldn't wear short skirts? Didn't you say you couldn't go out socialising with your friends and you couldn't go out on works, do's, like, you know, with your colleagues? Didn't you say, didn't you say, didn't you say? Yeah, well, that's coercion. 
And I was like, what? I said, oh my goodness, I've been coerced to the hilt. You know, being told what I can wear, what I can't wear, that I couldn't dye my hair, I couldn't cut a, a man's hair, being a hairdresser. You know, all this was my, I normalised this because that was Darren's rules. Like I said, it was his rules, his game. But I just didn't realise that this was not a normal relationship. You know, it was completely dominated by one person, which was Darren. So, yeah, if you can't do that. how it is. Yeah, yeah. If you can't make your own decisions, if you can't decide what you want to eat, what you want to wear, who you want to go out with, um, as and when, then you really need to assess your, your relationship. Yeah, I mean, extremely good advice. And I see clients, they don't even know. Like you said, they wouldn't know. They say, well, one client even said to me, well, I am scared of him, but I'm not terrified. So that's OK, isn't it? And it just breaks your heart because, it, you know, when and I'm a survivor as well and come you know being in a coercively controlling relationship you don't realize you don't have an idea quite often until you're out like you said with hindsight but there's the dangerous point isn't there when you start to leave because you're then exiting their control and that's when the abuse can escalate so have you got any advice for people around that area because obviously what happened to you is very extreme but it's a, it's a real risk right mm. if you start to to pull away from your perpetrator it's very interesting because I, I deliver the freedom program and I'm also a facilitator so I train the trainer for the freedom program and I can remember being shown a graph and um, it was quite incredible really when I was shown this graph I was like oh my goodness because it all made sense so on the graph you've got the rules of the game and then you've got the abusive behavior then you've got she refuses to comply, so breaking the rules, answering back and maybe leaving. So then his beliefs about women come under threat. So he's panicking now. It's like almost like the dog has answered back. You know, it's like, how dare you? So then what he'll do, when you hear people saying, go off and cool, cool down, go and calm down, they don't calm down. They are winding themselves up. They could be not saying a word. They could be verbally speaking out loud to, to themselves. This wind-up process could take minutes, hours, days, weeks, months. So what they're doing then is dehumanizing us. So they, they are calling us from our old to our poor and getting the excuses ready for why violence is going to happen because we've broken a rule in some way, shape or form. Then the violence takes place. He feels justified because he's got a good enough excuse to have done that violence. But then they've got to establish the rules back into place. So then his tactics will change and he'll become Mr. Persuader. So it will either be um, like, you know, I'm going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous because they'll blame drink on it. I'm going to go to the Drug Rehabilitation Centre. I'm going to go and get counselling for my bad childhood that I've had it'll be the threat. If you don't come back, I'll kill myself. Or if you don't come back, I'll report you to social services and tell them what a crap mother you are. You know, so it is just when you see this graph. And when I was talked around, I was like, oh my goodness, I can physically see Darren doing this. And as we say, that is the most dangerous mm -hmm. time when you leave a perpetrator. 
um, you, you know, you've got to do it safely. You've got to make sure that you engage with police, you engage with the domestic abuse service and let that, you know, you are with somebody, they will risk assess you to see sort of what level of risk you're at and then they will help you put the, the safety plan in place to get you out or get him or her out, you know, because we know women can be abused as well, but, you know, it's a, it's a minority as opposed to majority and do it safely. That's it for today's episode. Be sure to join me on my next episode for part two of my interview with Rachel Williams.